If you are a regular part of our church, you know that the steady diet here at Maple Avenue is to work through books of the Bible. We have reasons for that. Mainly, we don't want any one man driving the agenda of the church. We want to be looking to God. But you'll also notice, if you're looking at an upcoming preaching schedule and the topic for today, that we are doing a short topical series on the fear of God. Now, a topical series on the fear of God is probably not one you've heard many times. It's not a topic we often expound. It's a solemn topic, a heavy topic, not the kind of plucky positivism you often hope you might get from your weekly religious fix. So why preach a series on the, four, on the fear of God, even if it's only four weeks long? Well, it began because I, as I was reading through the Bible, I noticed over and over again there was an emphasis on the fear of God. It was dominant in the Old Testament, but it persisted all the way into the New Testament through to Revelation. To put it simply, the Bible makes a really big deal about the fear of God. And then as I examined my own life in light of that, I realized it's an area I need to grow. Something I didn't understand. And so I personally just started to study it. And look, how do I grow in this? How do I understand it more? And God's still teaching me and growing me. But as I dug in, I became convinced it's something that we as a whole church need to think about. So that's why we're doing a series on the fear of God. And the first passage we'll be looking at in that series is Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 528. And so let's stand as I read God's Word. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I feel this way every week. Perhaps we all do. It's kind of a, a sense of the weight of what we're about to do, to really pause and consider what you've spoken in your word, and yet feeling we're not really up to the task of me preaching it or all of us listening to it. It's so great and so weighty, and we fail to grasp that, but we feel that all the more on a topic like the fear of the Lord. we pause together just to come before you and, and acknowledge our hearts are distracted by all sorts of other things and even when they're not it's hard to grasp all of who you are and the weight of your word and the weight of what we're doing when we gather so what we're saying Father together is that we're, 
We need you. We need your Holy Spirit to be working powerfully in our midst to quicken our souls or to refresh them or remind them or convict them. We need you, and we're asking you, if it be your kind pleasure, to work powerfully this morning, even as it's just our own kind of uh, pathetic attempt to really grasp what you are saying and who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not a matter of if you fear. It's a matter of what you fear. We all fear. In fact, fear is one of the most basic motivators for human action. Some even suggest that it is the most powerful, powerful motivator for human action. So I want to just begin by asking three diagnostic questions that will help all of us get after what it is that we fear. What is it that, what fear is there out there that's driving or motivating our life? Three questions. The first question is, what or whose approval are you pursuing? What or whose approval are you pursuing? Maybe you're chasing your dad's approval or the ghost of your dad. Or maybe you're chasing respect from the world or esteem. Or maybe you just want the next rung in some niche subculture. But what or whose approval are you pursuing? That's the first question. Second one. What or whose voice holds sway over you? What or whose voice holds sway over you? Could be a blogger, or could be Hollywood. Maybe it's a trusted friend or a family member. Maybe it's a dream you have for you, your life that you've cooked up. And the pursuit of that holds sway over you. For what or whose voice holds sway over you is the second question. And the third question is, what negative thing are you living to avoid? What negative thing are you living to avoid? It might be letting someone down or being found out. It might be poor health, your mind starting to go, or it could be losing your attractive appearance. I already lost mine. It could be your kids flopping. Or it could be repeating your parents' mistakes. What negative thing are you living to avoid? I think it'd be wise for us to just 
We can't do it right now, but go home and, and consider these three questions with greater reflection. Because they help us understand who is it or what is it that we fear. Now, fear is a broad word. It means a lot of different things. So who is it that we defer to? Who is it that we trust? Who is it that we obey or follow? Who is it that we act so as to stay in their good graces? It's not a matter of if you fear. It's a matter of what you fear. Now, what I'm about to say is where that observation becomes drastically important. Because if we fear the wrong things, it will destroy us. Unhealthy fears, conscious or unconscious, can numb you, skew you, scramble you, twist you, and even haunt you. Sometimes they do that in a very overt way. Sometimes they do it subtly and subconsciously in ways you can't see. Now, there are times when fear can be a very good and healthy motivator. I don't want to die in this burning building, and so I run out of it. But most of the time, acting out of fear is a bad thing. And that's because of us, because most of the times we fear the wrong things. But listen to what the Bible says about the fear of God. If you closed your Bibles, open them back up to Proverbs 3. Verse 8 says, Of the fear of Yahweh, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Healing to your flesh. Refreshment to your bones. I mean, most fear destroys us. It knocks our boat off course so it goes lilting off. But the fear of God does just the opposite. Here's something really interesting that I discovered as I was digging into the Bible on the topic of the fear of God. Well, it says over and over and over again to fear God, there's something else it says over and over again. And that is, fear not. In fact, sometimes those two things are put right together side by side. So in Exodus 20, verse 20, Yahweh says, Be afraid that you will fear not. You see, God isn't interested in us being some sort of cowering, weak-kneed ninnies, whether conscious or in some subtle, complex way. He actually calls us to be strong, to be courageous, to fear not. In general, in the Bible, fear is a bad thing. And yet, when it comes to the fear of God, it's the most important thing. And that's because, and I want you to understand this phrase, fearing God frees us from all the earthly fears that plague our souls. 
fearing God frees us from all the earthly fears that plague our souls. Turn over to the prophet Isaiah, page 572, Isaiah chapter 8, page 572. This is what what Yahweh tells Isaiah to say to the people. Isaiah 8, verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. You see that? All the things that the people fear and dread, don't fear those things. He doesn't want you to live. What's the conspiracy? What's this going on? Just be freed from that and fear Yahweh. We naturally naturally fear all sorts of lesser things. But when we begin to fear God, we're freed from the fear of those lesser things. You see, the the fear of God heals. It refreshes. It's actually good for us. So yes, a series on the fear of God is somber and weighty. It ought to be. But it also may be the best news that you could ever hear. Because our souls were actually created to fear. They were created to fear the highest, most supreme authority. But when we fail to fear that highest, supreme authority, all sorts of other fears creep in and fill that vacuum. And when those lesser fears try and fill that vacuum, they make a mess of us. And if I were to guess, I think that's where many of us stand this morning. But, when we restore God Almighty to His right place, when our soul's natural bent towards fear is bent again towards fearing God, then and only then do those old fears that gripped us lose their power. Our bones and our flesh are healed. All that to say, the fear of God is pretty important. And we're going to look more, about, more into that particular topic next week. But if it's important, it's important to understand what it is. What is the fear of God? Is it a terror that causes us to shrink in fear before a God who could smite us? Is it a walking on eggshells not knowing when or if the most powerful being in the universe might unleash himself against us. A constant wondering, what will a capricious God do? Or is it more like that glowing respect a child has for a loving father who's holding that child in his warm embrace? It seems like when you hear people define the fear of God, Some definitions of the fear of God try to explain it away. 
while others fixate on fear and want us all to simply cower before God. That's because the word fear has a spectrum to it. On the one side, the word fear has that terror, and on the other side, it does have that reverence, and and fear covers that whole spectrum. But what view of the fear of God is right? Well, we need to be careful to make sure we let the Word of God shape how we define what the fear of God is. And in my own study, I think the most clear and helpful definition of the fear of God is given in the verses we read, Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. So again, keep your Bibles open there. The structure of this passage is very clear. There is a series of commands followed by the result of obeying those commands. There is another series of commands followed again by the result. Here's the blessing if you obey these things. And each set of commands is all talking about roughly the same thing, but it puts it both positively and negatively. So in verses 5 and 6, it says what we're to do. What are we to do? We're supposed to acknowledge and trust in Yahweh with all our heart and all our ways, right? Complete and total, acknowledging Him in everything, trusting Him in everything. And what are we not to do? You see it? Lean not on your own understanding. So what are we to do? Acknowledge and trust Yahweh. What are we not? Lean on our understanding. And the result, the blessing, is He will make straight your paths. And then in verse 7 and 8, again, we see that same structure. What are we to do? Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. And what are we not to do? We're not to be wise in our own eyes. And the blessing that comes from that, as we already saw, is healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So it's a pretty straightforward structure. Now, these two main sections, 5 and 6, 7 and 8, are not independent of one another. They're actually deeply intertwine they interpret one another it's a textbook exa- textbook textbook example of hebrew parallelism it means that when the he- it, when often in hebrew poetry the way they communicate is by putting two things in parallel that are supposed to be read against each other and understood in light of each other so that's really helpful because we have this phrase the fear of god here and so if we want to look and understand what the fear of God is, we only need to look to the other commands that are given in parallel with it. So fearing God means not being wise in your own eyes. Fearing God entails turning away from evil. Fearing God involves acknowledging Yahweh in every area of our lives. Fearing God means trusting Him with all our heart. And fearing God means not leaning on our own understanding. If you're just trying to take all those things and distill them down, you have trusting, acknowledging Him while also not leaning on ourselves, not being wise in our own eyes. Wholly trusting Him, acknowledging Him in every way. Not trusting your own wisdom, not leaning on your own understanding. 
See those two things? That, at its essence, is the fear of God. Let me put it like this. The fear of God is seeing how big God is and how small we are. The fear of God is seeing how big God is and how small we are. But the problem is that we naturally struggle against both those truths. I mean, we might just kind of, as Christians, conceptually get this idea that God is all-powerful. You might be here and you're not even a Christian, but you have some vague sense of a supreme being in the universe, and your logical mind says, if there is some supreme being in the universe, He has to be powerful. You get it conceptually. He can say a word and cause the sun to cease shining. He can give life, and He can take it. He alone holds the whole universe together. But the the personal and imminent sense of His greatness, where it's not just a concept, but something we grasp and acknowledge and lean into, that is something we struggle with. We struggle with seeing how big God is, but we also struggle with seeing how small we are. We tend to have an overdeveloped sense of how important we are. And that's true whether we have a high self-esteem or a low self-esteem. Because even those with low self-esteem, we tend to think our judgment is better than it is. We think our plans are better than they are. We have a more inflated sense of our own importance than it is actually accurate. You see, we tend to trust ourselves, our perceptions, our ideas, our emotions. Now, how that all works out in each individual personality is very different. But we all have an implicit trust in ourselves. What we all need, to quote one German philosopher, is to be submerged and overwhelmed by our own nothingness. Isn't that great? Submerged and overwhelmed by our own nothingness. Germans have a way with words. Of course, that's, I don't know what it was in German, but. And then he adds, in contrast to that which is supreme above all creatures. You see that? Our own nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme above all creatures. That's the fear of God. Grasp how vast God is, how tiny we are by comparison. He's immortal. We're mortal. He's strong. We're weak. He's wise. We're foolish. He's present and active everywhere, and we can barely manage our own to-do list. I want you to think about this. The, the, the strongest and the most competent among us in this room or even in this world could be, we could say, ten times or even a thousand times stronger and more competent than the next person down. A whole order of magnitude wiser and smarter and stronger and more competent. But that would be akin to a colony of ants finding their strongest 
and smartest ant to go enter into a wrestling match with a human being or a chess game with a human being. Yeah, you might be a thousand times bigger or smarter than the other ants. I don't want a thousand times bigger ant. Let's just say ten times. But you're not going to have much of a chance. Yet by our actions, we act, so many of us act like the foolish ant. Yes, in theory, we know we're no match for God. But in practice, we act as if we're at least, a pretty, at least pretty competent by comparison. We lean on our own understanding. Maybe in a few areas we acknowledge him. But by and large, we go through life charging ahead with little thought of him, trusting instead our own instincts and our own man-made wisdom. As John Calvin put it, we need to be broken and crushed by the awareness of our own utter poverty. Our nature lies far from his perfection. But you don't have to quote John Calvin to define the fear of God. The song Jesus Loves Me does a pretty good job. We are weak, but he is strong. I mean, that's the fear of God. We are weak, he's strong. Seeing how big God is. Seeing how small we are. That is the fear of God. But how it affects us is different depending on how we're oriented to that God. What our relationship is with that God. So, if you are an enemy of that God... It leads to what theologians like to call servile fear. It's the kind of fear that a slave has for maybe a cruel and capricious master. It's the kind of fear a peasant might have for a harsh or narcissistic king. It's the kind of fear the devil wants you to have of God. It's something that haunts you and disturbs you. Now, I want to qualify that a bit. If you are an enemy of God, he's not cruel and capricious, but he is holy and he is going to consume those who are rebels against him in an eternal fire. And so there is a right kind of servile fear that drives you into Christ so that you can be rightly oriented towards God. But for those who are in Christ, we are not to have that kind of servile fear. And that's where it's the devil trying to convince you that he's some capricious, cruel God. But if you are in Christ, if because of Christ you are actually a friend of this big God, it leads to what those same theologians call filial fear. Filial means like family, brothers. When baby cubs... Baby bear cubs sense danger. What do they do? They run to mama bear. They're glad that she's strong and they're weak. Because it means they can run to her for protection. That's filial fear. 
You see, it's the same bigness of God and smallness of ourselves, but our relationship with God changes how we approach it. One theologian explained that the fear of God means that we fear Him when there is reason to fear Him. We fear Him when there's reason to fear Him. So if we're over here, and we are enemies of God, we fear his wrath upon us because we there's reason to fear that he's a holy god who is trying to make a good and perfect world and anyone who's rebelling against his good and perfect reign he has to judge because he wants it to be good and sin is a terrible um, rebellion against him so we are over here there's a right fear but when we're in christ when we have trusted jesus and his blood has counted us allowed us to be forgiven and brought into god's family redeemed reconciled to him we don't have reason to fear anymore. But there is still a sense of fear because we know if we were outside Christ, there would be reason to fear. So there's a fear of God that knows even though I am protect from Him, protected from His wrath in Christ, I'm still aware of what is true about His anger towards sin. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Reason to fear God. To fear Him when there is reason to fear Him. Once we grasp that we're in Christ, we don't have that servile fear. We have a filial fear. Mama's bear cubs and her enemies both understand their smallness and her power. For this one, her enemy, it's the worst news. For the other, it's the best news. Same fear, but changed because of our relationship with whom or to, who, to the one that's feared. Let me say that again. It's the same fear, but changed because of our relationship to the one that's feared. So we have defined the fear of God, seeing how big God is and how small we are. We've seen how our relationship to that God changes how that fear affects us. But still, I think those concepts, while clear, can be a bit abstract, even a bit distant. And so as a pastor, I want to be able to provide some sort of analogy. Maybe you've seen me already trying to grasp for those. Mama bear and her cubs, the ant and a human being. Some people like to use the analogy of a good king or a good dad. And everyone, every Christian who preaches on the fear of God wants to go to Aslan in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But here's the deal. Analogies actually all break down. Because there isn't anything in this world like God except God. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the different kinds of relationships we have where that spectrum of fear plays a role. And I thought of four different types of fear we can have. And for each of these four different types of fear, the analogies would be different. The first fear is the fear of position. The fear of position. This is the kind of fear you have when somebody is in authority over you by virtue of their position. So maybe you're a big, strong guy and the policeman isn't as big and strong as you are. But the government has put him in a position over you and so there's a certain fear of him. You obey him. You follow what he says, even though you don't have to. Or maybe it's in the office environment. 
when the person who can promote you, give you a raise, or fire you walks into the room, your relationship with him or her is totally different than your relationship with everybody else. And how you relate to them is affected because you, you have a fear of them, a positional fear. On the spectrum of terror and reverence, reverence this kind of fear is somewhere in the middle. I mean, they could do some bad to you, so that's part, part of it. But part of it, there's, there's a relational aspect to it where there's just a reverence. This person is over me. That's the fear of position. The second is the fear of power. Fear of power. This is the kind of fear you have when you are physically weaker than someone. Like, you know, they could crush you if they wanted to. They could do whatever they wished to you, and you'd be powerless to stop it. There's that kind of fear. Uh, sometimes it's a good fear. You're a wife, and you have a big strapping husband who's trained in combat, and you trust him. It's a good, it's a good kind of fear in that situation. You're locked in with an untamed elephant in a cage, Maybe it's not such a pleasant kind of fear. But on the spectrum of terror and reverence, it's much more on the terror side of things. The fear of power. There's also what I'm calling the fear of relationship. By the way, when I'm saying the fear of, it's not that you're scared of relationships. I'm talking about the fear that comes from. The fear that is related to relationship or power or position. This is the kind of fear you have when you know somebody really loves you and desires your good. When somebody's actually sacrificed their own time, their own energy, their own pursuits for you. It's a very subtle kind of fear. On the spectrum of terror and reverence, it's way on the reverence end. But those people, their words or advice carry a different kind of weight with you, don't they? And you're very sensitive not letting them down or hurting them because you really value that relationship. That is also a kind of fear. I'm calling it the fear of relationship. And the last fear I thought of is the fear of competency. There's a fear you have when someone's vastly superior at you superior to you at something. It's like a group of people sitting around talking hockey, and then Bobby Orr walks into the room. The conversation suddenly changes. There's a lot more listening, a lot more asking questions. Opinions might be offered a little less confidently. That's also a kind of fear, isn't it? A fear that comes from someone being far more competent at you in something. And on the spectrum of terror and reverence, it's probably more on the reverence side. But those are, are four different things that the word fear could cover. And they're four really different kinds of fears. Now you could look at each one of those, and I tried to, to find examples that come pretty close to capturing it, maybe even perfectly capturing it. But it's only God who's able to bring all four of those strands together perfectly. And so when you're struggling for analogies, you're like, oh, does this one 
really capture his power? Does this one really capture his position? Does this one really capture his relationship? And you might find one analogy that does one well, but doesn't capture the other one well, which is why striving for analogies can be such a mess. God is at the same time the wise, trusted friend who knows you and cares for you and is committed to you. And he's that awesome power that could crush you and do whatever he wanted and you're powerless to stop it. There's no human analogy that brings that together. Only God does that. As our creator, he is positionally over us. And because he is all-powerful, we are completely powerless before him. But because through Christ he is our Savior and our friend, there is no relationship of greater love and sacrifice. And as the all-wise and all-knowing one, he's more competent than us in every area. So we don't fear him like a lion or a king, or a father, or a general. We fear him like almighty God, who also in Christ is our Savior and our friend. I think it's very fitting that as we start this series, we have the Lord's table before us. Because we cannot eat of this meal unless we have the fear of God. You know, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, for us to take of this bread and this cup, we are acknowledging our own smallness. We're acknowledging just how weak and sick we are. To take this meal means we've been crushed by the awareness of our own poverty. But it also means we see how big God is. He is the one doctor who, because of Christ, can heal our sin-sick soul. And because Christ has died for us, we can be brought into a right relationship with Almighty God. We can move from servile fear to filial fear. The ability to eat this meal with a right fear of God, a filial fear of God, is so important. It's important because For all of us, it's not a matter if we fear. It's a matter of who we fear. But it's when we learn to rightly fear God in Christ that we are able to fear not all the lesser things that seek to hold sway over our souls. Let's pray. God, help us to be a people who see 
just how needy we are, how small we are, how finite we are. May we be people who are not wise in our own eyes, who don't lean on our own understanding. May we be a people who trust in you with all our hearts, who see how big you are, who acknowledge you in every area, who fear you. God Almighty, Yahweh God. And Father, use this sermon to that end. And use this meal where we're taking these symbols of the body and blood of Jesus upon our lips to say we need, every month, we need to just feast physically in a way we can feel in our lips and our tongues and our throats. Feel that we depend upon 